Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast. I have Gail McGill. Uh, He's the president and CEO of Digizyme. He's the director of molecular visualization in the Department of Biological Chemistry and Molecular Pharmacology at Harvard Medical School. So, uh, Gail, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good. I'm great. Thanks for having me on the the podcast. What's your uh, research about? Uh, and your work at Digizyme, you know, how do the two coincide? So I'm mostly interested in how we visualize science, how we understand it through uh, images. And um, as we'll discuss, I, we tend to approach that in a number of different ways. So not only through projects in, in the real world with companies and schools and museums and things like that, but we're also interested in the design decisions that lead to effective imagery for communicating science. And that's more the side that I try to tackle as an academic uh, and with kind of federally funded research at at Harvard Medical School. So it's really... When you you talk about imagery, do you talk about images used in the clinic, like MRI images, or do you talk about teaching science and showing examples of stuff? Yeah, no, that's a great point. So the, the imagery that we usually create is not the imagery that is coming straight out of either medical or other instruments. So uh, even that's, of course, not to say about the relative Im- importance of, of those images as well, it goes without saying, but we tend to create imagery that is for teaching, uh, but that also, I think of it as knowledge synthesis. So um, combining a lot of different data into representations that help you better understand complex science. Um, and also, representing areas of science. I mean, I'm a a molecular biologist by training in areas where there is no microscope powerful enough, frankly, to to actually get a direct image. So there are some realms of science like the molecular cellular realm where, where we actually need software to create imagery of molecules because they're too small to see with uh, microscopes. So if I see a really cool visualization of how DNA gets transcribed, it's, it might have come from you, like on YouTube and stuff, right? That's it's, it's quite possible. Uh, I thought you were going to say it, might, it was probably coming out of a software program as opposed to a microscope, and, and the answer would have been yes. In other words, it's, uh, and it's, it's one of the things I'm interested in, which is how res- people respond or understand when they're looking at images that are right out of instruments versus someone had to create this in order for you to see it. And, and the minute that someone has to create it and the minute that it's created from data it kind of creates a whole host of questions about how and why it was created what is the kind of artistic license that was used and and that's where again i was saying that this aspect of how do we design imagery for it to be most effective in teaching and communication that's kind of another aspect that i'm that i'm very interested in so i think people love these visualizations i mean i know i do I crave them. I always want to know what something looks like. And, you know, if they're done right, it can really advance your knowledge of uh, 
of a given area. Like, you know, there's this contest that I think it's by Nikon or I don't know which camera company, but, you know, it's at least light microscopy, what could be seen and, you know, the most amazing imagery there. And that's, that's super informative, but you know, the stuff you do as well is so, yeah, that's my feeling about it. No, it's, it's like, uh, I mean, you know, as a, as a scientist, it's like being a kid in a candy store. I mean, it's, it's an endless series of topics, even beyond one's immediate field of expertise. So again, even though I'm a cell molecular biologist, I've probably learned more science as, as my role in, in leading uh, Digizyme as a, as, a, as a science visualization company than in the six years of my PhD where I focus on one little topic. Scientific visualization reaches all the way from, again, the atomic to geological evolutionary timescales and, and everything in between. So it's really... It's uh, yes, the the result is images, and that's why we call it visualization or animations. But I think it's the process that we go through in order to create them that's actually most interesting, and and is maybe kind of the the hidden part of the iceberg for most people. They just see the result of our work. I think what's very powerful is all of the information and data that you need to synthesize in order to create an effective visual, uh, and and that's why it's such an exciting thing to do on a on a daily basis. Yeah, like I wish they would have a, um, you know, I looked at anatomy books and that's static, but I wish they would have a, a 3D program where you can look at various parts of the body and, you know, have the body sit or lay down or stand or run and you could zoom in and pan and look under and around things and take things apart and strip off layers. and You know, even the human body, I don't know of any software that does that. Like I've, I've seen in movies, you know, someone kicks someone and crushes their skull supposedly and they make this like little animation of it but i know that has nothing to do with with reality i wish they would have software like this for instance about the human body that would be really cool yeah well we're actually we're, we're getting there i think with the new technologies not just 3d animation but with things like vr and even ar uh, virtual reality augmented reality there are programs uh and i should mention if if we are talking kind of at the human body anatomy level there there is one professional organization in particular called the ami the american medical illustrators association which is just a fantastic place to go and and an amazing group of individuals who are formerly trained both in, in science and in medical sciences, as well as in, as in art and, and wielding a whole number of technologies, digital technologies from, you know, handheld pencil to uh, digital painting techniques, animation, and even VR. So it's, it's through communities like that. And I think the efforts of those folks um, and, and, and ourselves, I mean, we're, we're part of that community uh, where we're trying to create more and more of these educational tools that, that kind of, you know, provide the best of both interactive technologies and what we know about effective pedagogy and design. So what about with things that you can't see, you know, on the, at the, the nanometer scale inside of a cell, inside of a bacteria or a virus? I mean, how do you begin to make visualizations of those? Yeah, that's the, well, that, that's actually, I, I'm, I'm interested in many things, but I confess I, I always have a, a sweet spot for the, uh, the infinitely small because that's where my, my passion for science really started. So, yeah, I mean, as, as I was mentioning earlier, we, we obviously have very powerful instruments. There are microscopes that are based on light, so light micro, microscopes. At some point, you reach kind of the lower limit of what the visual, the, the visible spectrum and those wavelengths of light can do. 
and you have to go to other methods like electron microscopy. But even then, as you go further and further down and try to see features that are smaller and smaller, you basically hit a, hit a limit. And, and that's where other techniques come into play. Uh, ones such as uh, X-ray crystallography, or the, what the recent, uh, a recent Nobel Prize was awarded in is this other technique called uh, cryo-electron microscopy. So, but to make a long story short, these are techniques that essentially allow you to shine uh, rays or, or, or beams through um, preparations, crystals in the case of X-ray, but even more disorganized preparations in the case of cryo-EM. And by by analyzing how these beams are, are deflected, are, ref, are, are bounced back, you can reconstitute an image uh, and get the information for the precise location of every single atom in a molecule. And, and that molecule can be, you know, small, like a hormone or something like that, or it can be rather large, like an entire virus. Um, so we, we actually have really good data on how these things look like, and we're getting more and more of these data, but these are just data. And so at that point, you need to take what is essentially a, a 3D coordinate list and create an image from that. And that's basically where we come in and, and even run with that even further. In other words, not just static images of, let's say, what a virus looks like and Unfortunately, we've been seeing a lot of those recently in particular, but um, we're very interested when you have multiple snapshots of what the same virus or protein or molecule looks like in different states, you can also actually create morphs or animations of how these things might go from one state to another. So to make a long story short, software-based reconstructions can be very powerful uh, at leveraging these data sets for very small things like molecules or even parts of cells. You know, whenever I've spoken to someone that's in a particular field, they always hate when movies have been made about it or shows because they're always like so horribly inaccurate. So when you see stuff on YouTube, animations and things like that, you know, are a lot of them accurate? I know this is like a very wide ranging question or are a lot of them completely inaccurate? Are they good faith attempts to really see what's going on? Like what's, you know, yeah. if I just go on YouTube and look up stuff, am I likely right. to see accurate stuff or not? Right. No, that's actually really, it's a, it is a huge question, but it's a great well, one I, I really like because one of my favorite slides to use actually when I give seminar, just even uh, scientific seminars at conferences or, or, or various places, I have one slide where I've collected at one point the, the top, if I just search DNA, in let's say Google images, I collect the top 10 images. And this may have changed because of course the search results shuffle around over time. But at one point, um, so I put all these pictures of DNA on a slide and then I ask this scientific audience, I say, what do all these DNAs have in common? And usually, you know, there's kind of a silence that spreads over the audience as they inspect these pictures of molecules. And the answer is that they're all wrong in one way or another. So either they're lacking an important feature, which is this major minor groove. So it's not just a twisted ladder, but not to get into the weeds, but that's usually one issue. Another issue is that it's usually twisting the wrong way. You know, it's not a right-handed helix that's depicted as a left-handed helix. The, the, the reason I use that slide is to try to get people to you know, it's, it's hard to speak about just accurate or not accurate. I think that the way I rather um, 
get people to think about it is this kind of famous sentence of, you know, all models are wrong, some are useful. It, it really depends on the useful part. So we are rather obsessed with accuracy, I have to say, because everyone, un unlike some of the other, I guess, groups that we work with or, or perhaps you might say compete against in the field, pretty much everyone on, on the DigiDesign team is a scientist by training. So one of the differences in the way that we've approached our work and it's not to say that collaborations between scientists and artists or animators are not great. They, they are, and they've led to wonderful work. But in, in putting together my own team, we found that to really do justice to the science and, and be able to make design decisions that um, don't oversimplify, it's been important to find people who really combine both kind of graduate PhD level understanding of the science and uh, you know, production, production quality, you know, animation, graphic design capabilities. So because of these kind of duly trained backgrounds, um, that's not to say that we always get it right, but we are driven kind of by our, our passion for the underlying science. And so that's usually where we start. And we really try to understand what are the, the key features. And understanding the science doesn't necessarily make it easier to then make the right design decisions, which is a whole separate can of worms. In other words, some things are so complex to depict that in order to make it understandable, you still need to make all kinds of decisions for what you're going to leave out because you can't show everything. Oh, what, what's an example of that? Oh my gosh. Well, any, I mean, pretty much any picture of a molecule that you've seen has probably had all the, just to pick up an immediate example, all of the surrounding molecular environment has most likely been removed for you. So I, I know that sounds really kind of simple, but just to, to, to start with the basics, we were just talking about pictures of DNA. If you're showing me a picture of a beautiful, even if the DNA itself is, is correct in its structure, but it's on kind of a, an empty background, by definition, that's a design decision right there because DNA does not float around in air. It's usually in a solution. It could be in a test tube of water. And in that case, someone has decided to remove the depiction of all the water molecules around the DNA, but they're, they're there, right? Uh, or in the case of a cell, which is usually where people are, are depicting things. So they're trying to show you how a, a gene is getting turned on or something of the DNA is getting mutated those environments are unbelievably crowded and complex. And not only that, but they're moving at speeds that are completely outside the realm of, of the human senses or experience, right? So they're- Really, they're, how fast? What do you mean? Well, we're talking picosecond, femtosecond. I mean, ranges that are orders and orders and orders of magnitude faster than anything we can imagine. It's wow. the, the analogy in the other direction is if I tell you that, you know, uh, Precambrian fossils 600 million years ago. You know, I can give you that number, but as a human, how do we intuit those numbers? We 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 can't, right? We can we can learn them, we can memorize them, but they mean very little to us intuitively. The same thing happens. Uh, yeah. How do you how do you how do you even then know that you're? I don't know. How do you know that you're close to imaging the real thing? I mean, yeah, I've no, heard about question. the molecular storm, for instance, and I guess it. Like, you know, have you ever tried to create images like that? Like, here's the image yes. created for you, and Absolutely. here's what we guess it might really look like, no matter yep. how messy. So, but keep in mind that the look like 
is is um, is not necessarily the is. So so when you ask the first part of the question is how do you know? We do have instruments though that give us data, and and that data informs us on the size, the speed, all all kinds of characteristics. Then there's the separate question of how do you depict that in in imagery for kind of human consumption. And that's where, so to, to get to the second part of your question, how do we, you know, have we ever attempted that? Not only we've attempted it, but it's actually the basis for some of the research now that I do kind of with my academic cap on. So as, as part of um, my work at, at Harvard Medical School, and, and I collaborate with wonderful researchers uh, also at the University of Toronto, namely Jody Jenkinson in, in her lab there. What we're trying to look at is when we create for example, the same short molecular movie. So let's say we're looking at some hormone binding on the the receptor on the surface of a cell. Short sequence, maybe 20 seconds. So nothing, nothing fancy. But we create that movie, let's say in four different versions. We, We create a version that I would call the most kind of typical version where the hormone, you know, is flying through space in a very gentle arc. It, it gently slows down, it lands on the receptor. The receptor on the surface of the cell seems to know the hormone is coming and, you know, they embrace and boom, you know, that's, that's your typical molecular animation. It, it almost uses kind of the Disney principles of animation, which is <laughs> nice overlapping motion, the proteins know where they're going. Every, everything's gr- nice and graceful and nothing's around them. It's just them, the, the molecular actors. Well, that's version one. Version two might be exactly the same actors, but now the path of both the receptor and that hormone is going absolutely nuts. In other words, it's, it's a random walk, which it really is in real life. It is a random walk. So that's version two. Version three might be that same thing as version two with messy motion on both receptor and and ligand or hormone. But now we've added a a host of other molecular actors that surround these two proteins. So it's getting messy visually. And then the version four, which is typically my favorite, is the complete mess where basically think of version three, but now we've added all of the molecular water, the stuff that people almost never show. So why am I taking you through this? Well, we create four versions because then we can take, let's say, undergraduate students, hundreds of them, and we can break them up into four groups and give them like a pretest and a post-test. And each group will see a different version of that same animation. And we can do eye tracking on the students so that we actually know what they are looking at during those 20 seconds. We can ask them to describe what they're seeing. So do kind of a a concurrent verbalization. And then we can do a long-term delayed post-test two weeks later. And all of this is in hopes of understanding which is the version that helps students better learn some of the key features that you're trying to, for them to understand. Why would it be one version? Why wouldn't you uh, show the simplest and then more and more complex until it's approaching reality? I mean, this is what I learned in engineering. Precisely. Precisely. I mean, that's exactly what you want to do. And, and it seems so obvious and yet it's not what's done. So typically what a teacher would do is to go, let's say you're teaching, I don't know, the, the cell cycle or some, something, some topic, typically what they will do, and uh, everything's a generalization, but as a, as a general kind of, you know, approach to this, you go off and you look for the best possible cell cycle animation to show your students. 
and students love the animations. You usually get quite a, an attention bump. You know, I think of it as almost like attention credits, right? You bring an animation to class, students will love it. But how often will, will teachers take two or three animations of the same topic? They don't have to be long, but multiple ones created by different people and have the basis of the discussion not be about, you know, what did we learn, but how are the versions different? And what was left out in some of them? And do you think this one's right? Why not? Or, or why, why do you think about this one's right? So in other words, what, what I'm interested in pedagogically is involving people in thinking about how the images were made, because it turns out that that in and of itself is a fantastic way to learn the material, right? I mean, science, not to get too philosophical here, but science is not a bunch of facts, right? Science is a way of knowing, and it has to be taught that way. You know what would be nice too is if you have a system and you do models of it and you say this is assumption set one and here's the models we create and here's now assumption set two right. and here's the model we create. I don't know if everything will be amenable to that, but that would also teach you even more about a certain function or a certain thing. No, absolutely. And I mean, you, you, you're you hitting with your questions on kind of, uh, which is great, on, on different aspects of our work. So even though I just described kind of a, um, the kind of experiment that we run, again, kind of in our uh, my federally funded, you know, part of, of my activities, what you've just described is also something we, we kind of published on pretty recently, which is this notion of, wouldn't it be nice if the visualizations came with some sort of, of metadata system that would indicate not only how they were made, but as you said, what are the, you know, what hypothesis or what model is this depicting and, and based on what data and how does it compare to this other model? And we're trying to develop uh, tools that let you basically take these movies and add, you know, kind of an interactive like HTML5 wrapper around them and that let us annotate these visualizations so that people don't just see the result of, of the visualization, but they can gain more information about how they were made and what is the level of accuracy that was used. Um, so so what, what, yeah. you must have, I don't know, since you're a visual guy and in this regard, I am too. Like I can tell you, I got Frank Netter's anatomy book. You know, he's a medical illustrator. And, and I looked through it a bunch of times and I, I said to myself, let's see what I learned. And I noticed just by looking at the images many times, all this information comes out at you that you never would have even suspected you'd figure out. So what have you figured out? What, what kind of things have you looked at where ideas came to you and you had to rush to tell somebody like things that you figured out by looking or even feedback from people that have looked that have come up with new and really amazing insights? I mean, it's, it's literally why I get up every morning. I mean, every day, every, I won't say maybe every minute, but it's, it's really, I mean, it is the core of our work. In other words, the, and, and it's not just that it's exciting for us who are doing it, but what I find constantly fascinating, and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, in a sense, a little bit of my soapbox is to try to get the scientific community and, and even industry to gain a better appreciation for the benefits of visualization. Again, people tend to focus on the end product. Like I want a pretty animation of our mechanism of action or some, you know, here's a new drug. We want to make an animation of how it works. But the number of times that we've worked with experts in their field. So literally some, some guy who is the world expert on, let's say, the proteins on the surface of HIV or some other virus, 
this is the person who's actually generated the data, right? So they've published, they're the ones who have, who have known these proteins and, and know what they look like. When you engage these people in creating a visualization with them, you start to see these mini epiphanies that happen. And it's always surprising to me because, again, these are already the experts. And yet, in the process of, of having to create a visual uh, or a visual model, a dynamic model of their work, they're having to externalize some of their knowledge in ways that other activities like teaching or writing don't necessarily force them to do. So it's, it's um, you know, for, for me, so you asked for a specific example. I mean, right now we're in the midst of creating, this is kind of an in-house project, not driven by a, you know, a client or a commission, but we're in the process of creating a full um, cell entry animation visualization for the SARS and COVID-2 virus. And I think it's, a, it's actually a good case study for us because Lord knows we've seen a bunch of really beautiful images in the news. There's the image from the CDC. There's a lot of interesting activity in terms of people kind of creating pretty pictures of the virus and, and not just pretty, you know, based on available data that's been published, which is great. But what we haven't really seen yet, and, and this is what we want to try to contribute to the community, both for outreach, but also for the scientific community, you know, there's an incredible choreography, a molecular choreography that happens from the time that the virus first binds cells that express the right receptor to the time that the virus can actually penetrate the cell's membrane and release its genetic payload. Yeah, and I've, I've seen one animation where a virus, like, turned itself inside out and it was like a crane unfolding and then that pulled the membrane apart and entered and it was amazing. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's exactly what happens. The, the, you know, the, 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 the big barrier for viruses is that, you know, cells are surrounded by these membranes, these kind of fatty like uh, layers of molecules made of, of lipids. And, you know, for most hydrophobic, um, well, sorry, hydrophilic, in other words, for, for, for things like viruses or other molecules, it's very difficult to go through that membrane. That's, that's part of the point of the membrane. So in order for the virus to, to begin infection, to get into your cell, it has to, in the case of SARS, it has to fuse, merge its membrane with the cell's membrane. But that's also very uh, energetically expensive to do. In other words, from a, from a kind of a thermodynamic perspective, like these things don't just, they don't just happen. So to make a long story short, there's this complicated protein machinery that lives on the, those spikes on the surface of the coronavirus. Those are not only responsible for tethering the virus to the surface of, of its target cells, but once that virus is tethered, it has this incredible refolding of this protein that drives the membranes to fuse together. And, and once they do, it's, you know, it's, it's game over in the sense that the virus is now able to, to enter the cell. So depicting those conformational changes, depicting how that viral protein is driving that process is something that we actually know a lot about. We have studies going back, you know, 20 years in, in other very similar beta coronaviruses that we can use to assemble kind of a full visualization of that process. So just being engaged in, in summarizing that data and creating that visualization has been an incredible eye-opener for me, at least, to, to better understand how this thing works. And if you know how it works, you can, of course, better devise methods to inhibit it. Well, in that regard specifically, I wonder if it's one virus entering all on its own or if it's 
one, you know, more than one coordinating, and that's how they get through the membrane. But that's you know a yeah. detailed uh, nuance that maybe you don't know about. Or I don't. Well, no, I mean we do. I mean, so without going too deep into just viruses in general, the 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 it's it's really interesting. So there's a lot of variety among viruses, right? From from HIV, flu, SARS, dengue. I mean, it just the list goes on, and they're all devise these really the, 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 if you just look at their sequence and the shapes of their proteins and just what they look like there's a there's a great deal of variety what's interesting though is that underneath that that variety at, at first glance is very similar machines in fact most viruses can just be popped into these two categories for their their membrane fusion machinery so that's just another way of saying that if you study how flu Interest cells, or if you study how HIV interest cells, you actually learn a lot about how SARS interest cells. And so these these machineries have a lot in common. Uh, and I won't go into the details of it, but that's that's how we're able to to make some some pretty good educated guesses as to how, let's say, the new virus machinery works based on all the data that's been accumulated from these other viruses. And and you're right; it, it probably takes more than just one spike protein. It, it probably takes the action of at least two of them to kind of refold and drive this membrane fusion. Yeah, I wonder if it's like the Matrix, you know, where those machines landed on the the Nebuchadnezzar ship and they lasered and open and entered together and they pulled it apart. Well, that's know, it's not that's, exactly that. But. It's much, much more complicated than that. <laughs> and I say that in, a, in, a, in an excited way. In other words, if, if it was just lasers breaking stuff apart, we kind of know how that works. No, the, the problem with these viruses is that it's, it's literally shape-shifting, right? I mean, we're, we're taught in bio one classes, everyone at some point in high school that, you know, proteins fold into these, these native shapes and then it's because of their shape that they carry out their function and you know that's that's great but what it doesn't really tell us is the fact that proteins are these incredible shapeshifters and that if if you don't understand how they change shape you basically can't understand their function so it's it's not just about seeing what they look like it's about trying to understand again this kind of choreography and in the case of these viral proteins, that choreography is really complicated. It's it's quite beautiful. I mean, I, I hate to use that word in the in the midst of a pandemic, but from the scientific point of view, it is quite a beautiful process. It's it's quite amazing that something well, like this you, has, has evolved. You mentioned earlier about random walk and randomness. You more than many people see nature and how it acts and how complicated it is. Do you still believe that a lot of it is driven by randomness or that life harnesses stochasticity or randomness to do work? I mean, how has this changed your belief in, for instance, what constitutes life or maybe the origins of life or, you know, what the, the current dogma says about how, how biology acts? Yeah, I, it, it hasn't changed at all. It, it's just kind of deepened the foundation of, of I would say, you know, an, an earlier sense of how it works. In other words, I think our challenge as, as humans trying to understand these processes, again, is that they're happening on both time and spatial scales that are completely outside of our intuition. So, a, a, a typical example, and, and I think one that's not that that uncommon, is if you think about how we experience, um, well, just take gravity, right? So you have an apple on the table, you you 
bump the apple, it falls off the table, right? We, we have that experience ever since, you know, the age of one or, or less. We, we see this, we, in, we intuit it, we know it's going to happen. The apple never jumps up from the floor back onto the table, right? But for example, take gravity. Gravity is almost completely meaningless. Well, it's not meaningless. It's just, it has very, very little impact at the molecular scale for let's take that same hormone traveling around and binding to a cell or take, take a virus because the forces of the fluid around it are much stronger than gravity. So for us, if you were a, if you were a molecule swimming through um, water at the molecular scale, you wouldn't experience it as the water that we know. You would experience it as molasses or much, much thicker than molasses. So uh, I'm, I'm giving that example just because, again, the, the forces that we intuit at the macroscopic scale are not applicable to what molecules are, are experiencing on the molecular scale. Not only that, but they're happy, much, much faster. Yeah, I've heard that from people studying nano nanomachines or micromachines. Right. And I think the, the, the problem with that is that students, I mean, all of us, but we see it and we measure it, especially in students, there are all kinds of interesting misconceptions that are naturally kind of seeded when you show an animation like the one I mentioned earlier, like that version one, right, where the molecule kind of lands gracefully on its receptor as if both of them know what, knew what they were doing, Right. That's the problem, is that that's been shown so often. There's actually a follow-up study, again, with, with collaborators up at the University of Toronto, where we found, and this is now testing over 1,000 undergraduate students in biology, that over 83% of those students believe that molecules know where they're going. That's a, that's a big problem, <laughs> because fundamentally, it means that you don't really understand what are the forces that are driving the system at that scale. That the molecules have no clue where they are, who they are, where they're going. The only thing that determines whether that hormone is going to bind its receptor is if there's enough attempts, random attempts, if that random walk takes it in the vicinity of the receptor, and even after bumping into it a whole bunch of times unproductively, if it happens to bump into it at the right time, in a complementary way, in other words, you know, kind of the, the, the lock and key analogy, then it will bind. And that seems like an incredibly inefficient process. But the reality is that at the speeds at which things are happening down there, it's, it's perfectly, you know, uh, plausible uh, and, and likely. And it's, in fact, how things are happening. So, but, but then again, there's questions like this, you know, if you were able to model a cell, even a really simple one, like really model it. Where is the life in it? You know, what makes a cell alive? Well, now, okay, I mean, that's a good, that's a good great... luck. Good luck figuring that out. You know, now that's a great question, but it's it's you've taken us in a completely different direction, which is I know, I know, what... we don't have to go there, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's a great even, one. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a great one. Well, and I'll what, tell you, even even something else, like, what would it take to be able to at least I'll, I'll just say semi accurately model a cell in VR where you could be in it and walk around it in VR and see most of the structures that are there and see things going on. I mean, it just see, seems like unbelievably complicated. Yeah. And, and but that's the, that's the problem right there that we were talking about before. If, if you were to put an infinitely, you know, a tiny nano camera in the middle of a cell, you wouldn't see a thing because the cell is completely, there is no empty space in a cell. 
So there's no, you know, all the molecular animations you've probably seen are these large vistas, you know, really beautiful, complex, usually if the, you know, if, if the animator has done his, his or her job. And there might even be accurate proteins floating around and everything. But the reality is that you've had to remove 90% of the stuff that's in there. Otherwise, it would immediately clog the, you know, the front of the camera. So oh, I know, the- I know, but there's still a, a huge gap between what I've seen and what's, you know, what's real. I mean, you can yeah, certainly get well, closer to it. There are things out there. I mean, especially in, in the past, I would say five years or so, there are definitely, including such kind of VR, you know, uh, tour through the cell type of things. Th- those are definitely coming out. Um, but again, I think just to be clear, there, there's a difference between someone building this environment for you as a, as a, you know, kind of learning experience. And I think what you were kind of the way you were saying things a few minutes ago, which is more along the lines of, can we model a cell in a predictive way. In other words, can you create a model of a cell for me such that given these changing environmental variables, something, increased temperature, give it sugar, you know, whatever it is you're doing to it, you can predict how it will respond to it. That's a, that's a completely different, you know, uh, question. And, and both are, both are certainly interesting challenges, but um, yeah. You see biology, I guess, I know, probably in a more real frame than a lot of people, because you think about it so much and you have to model it. Do you, what's your overall gestalt when you look at biological processes? Are they messy? Are they, do they have hidden order? I mean, I guess they do, obviously. But like, what, what do you feel when you look at systems where they're closest as possible to reality? Yeah, gosh, that's uh, so, so many different answers. I, I think the, the first one that comes to mind is... Again, in, in, in the realm of, or in, in, you know, thinking about topics that we don't, um, that typically most of us don't appreciate and that I think kind of blow my mind every time I'm, I'm reminded of it. Most of what we're seeing around us, and it doesn't matter what area of biology, whether you're looking at the molecular or, a, you know, an albatross gliding through the sky, whatever it is, we're basically looking at something that has been through millions of trial and error iterations. I mean, nature is the great engineer, right? And we, I mean, I think part of this, the reason I'm thinking about this or it's on my mind recently, we're we're in the midst of, uh, we're very lucky to be collaborating with a a great and and fantastic guy, Eric Shivian, on a a book that, that looks at biologically inspired design and engineering as a solution for for sustainable engineering practices. So a a neighboring field or what people will refer to often is this idea of biomimicry, right? Looking to to uncover concepts that we might use. And so it's not just the idea of biomimicry, but in this case, we're arguing that it's biomimicry for sustainable engineering and biodiversity preservation is, is kind of the key theme. But to get back to your question, I think one of the things that amazes me is that when we look at these systems, whether it's SARS and COVID-2 binding the surface of a cell, or again, a bird flying through the sky, we're looking at natural systems that have been really under such evolutionary selective pressure. You know, all the failed experiments are gone. (laughs) They didn't survive. So we're seeing machinery that is incredibly finely tuned uh, you always have to be careful with the language that we use because then we immediately go into kind of the, the um, you know, language that implies 
careful design, forward design. There's no forward design. There's just incredible variation followed by tough selection. And if you do that enough times and you iterate on it enough times, um, you wind up seeing the kinds of uh, incredible molecular and other machines that we observe. And so those are, I think that's a perspective that is always um, as astonishing to me, that we, we are looking at designs that seem so finely tuned, so perfect for what they're meant to accomplish. And it's the power of selection. It's just that we have a hard time with our human brains imagining the number of iterations and the number of selective cycles that these things have gone through, in some cases for literally hundreds of millions of years. Um, okay. Well, what, um, so, I mean, we're kind of at the end. What are, what are some resources? I hope you've got tons of movies and pictures that we could add to the show notes, but you know, what resources do you have? Where can people go to see the most mind-blowing, cool animations based on their sure. interest? Sure, sure. Well, you know, obviously my, my first thought comes to the, the resources we've built. That's not to say that they're the only ones by any stretch of the imagination, but those are, those are the ones I'll allow myself to, to, you know, recommend first. So, you know, so my company, Digizyme, uh, of course, our website and our portfolio shows some of what we've created over the years. It's now been 20 years. But, you know, we didn't talk about this too much today, but another important part of doing this work is to have the proper tools to to, to have the right software. Um, historically, you know the, the the billions of dollars that has been invested in the in the entertainment industry, the Hollywood industry, has yielded really powerful software. The the type of software used to make you know all the Pixar movies, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all all of those. So that's great software. The the problem with that software is that it doesn't know anything kind of intrinsically about molecules or proteins or, or living matter, right? So a molecule in that software is the same as a, as a spaceship or a chair or, or anything else. So what we've wanted to do and have done over the past 10 plus years is to create our own software that lives inside the larger kind of Hollywood software so that we're able to leverage the, the strength, the power of the Hollywood software, but bring in the scientific accuracy of, of what we need from these data sets. So our software called Molecular Maya is basically a series of plugins for Maya, which is kind of a, an industry standard in, in um, 3D animation and, and VR and other fields. So anyway, part of our effort has been to, to create tools that not only we use, but also other people in our field. And then the, the last thing to answer your resources question, I, I have always kind of really been interested and loved to teach and, and develop resources for the community. So over the past few years, we launched, we kind of relaunched a site that we had created earlier. Uh, now the, the portal is called Clarify, C-L-A-R-A-F-I.com. And the purpose of the site, it not only hosts our software, Molecular Maya, but it's um, a site that lets you browse in the showcase a number of uh, interesting animations that we've selected and curated. So they're not just our work, they're the work of many people. And also there's a series of online courses and training that allow people who are interested in scientific visualization uh, to enter the field, to learn how to use the software and to, to create their own work. So um, okay. yeah, so there's uh, some, of the, some of the resources available. Well, very good, Gail, this is awesome. I love this kind of visualization stuff. So uh, thanks for the resources and everything. And it's really cool what you do. I mean, you have like a super amazing job. So uh, 
thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.